Hello there, listeners. It's Susie New from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk about all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. First of all, happy Movember. For those of you who don't know about Movember, it is an opportunity to raise awareness for men's health and it encourages men to fundraise by growing facial hair. So in this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Paul Scott, who is a member of the Australian Society of Anesthetists and inventor of the Scott Airway Management Device. What does this have to do with Movember? Well, I know, we have all been there. A patient with a beard that we can't bag mask ventilate. So in this episode, we'll hear Paul's experience of this and how it led to him inventing the Scott Airway Management Device. If you're like me and you want to see what this device actually looks like, I'll put a link to his website in the episode notes. And I also plan to put this podcast on YouTube. Again, follow the links or look up the ASA on YouTube to find our channel. And finally, if you're an inventor or innovator, then look out for the ASA webpage we have designed just for you. I'll provide more details at the end of the episode. Okay, let's get into it. Thanks for giving up some time this morning to have a little bit of a chat with me. Lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you too. I've heard obviously a fair bit about you because you seem very busy with this latest airway device. So before we go into it, I just want to find out a little bit about you. You're an anaesthetist. Yeah, so I'm a full-time private specialist in Brisbane and worked for 10 years as a staff specialist at the Royal Brisbane before embarking on private practice which sort of allowed me more time to chase my other passions, which include medical education and the development of these medical devices with Scott Airway Management. You have a few feathers in your cap. Yeah, so I actually studied commerce law at the University of Queensland for three years and got a commerce degree. And then at the end of the three years, realised I didn't want to be either a lawyer or an accountant. And then I did an arts degree before starting medicine at Newcastle. And we started my anaesthetic training in Scotland before coming back and finishing training in Brisbane. So you've designed the Scott Airway Management Device? Yeah, so it's a Scott Airway Management Safety Shield. And we have two devices, a shield that is sold in conjunction with a Gadel, which the primary purpose for that is to assist with bag mask ventilation of patients with beards. And we also have a SAM safety shield with bite block, which the primary purpose is to reduce aerosolization of airway secretions during procedures like endoscopy, bronchoscopy, and transesophageal echo. So just to describe the shield in a bit more detail, mm-hmm. obviously people listening to this can't see it, but we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Yes. Yeah, so it's a graded silicon shield that is, I suppose, in a heart-like shape. It sits underneath the nose, extends a little bit up towards the cheeks and then drops to the bottom of the chin and is graded so that it's got a bit of a cone-like shape to improve bag mask ventilation of bearded patients. And then the shield itself has an opening where the mouth is. That's correct. And the Goodell device sits snugly inside the mouth so that there's no leak around it and the same with the bite block that it's a tight seal and the bite block also has a valve across it such that once the probe's in sight you very little aerosols are released anteriorly. Right, got you. So the silicon that's going around the upper lip, the cheek and the chin, that's Mm. there so that when you put your mask on, you've got something firm to seal your mask against where you've got someone with a beard, so you're minimising that air leak. 
That's correct. So as all anaesthetists are aware, bag mask ventilating people with beards is a, a predictor of difficult or in fact impossible ventilation. And we've all had that experience. And we all know, of course, that that's because when you're trying to create a seal between the mask and the face, the beard gets in the way and allows air to escape out. And sometimes you just give up, right? And you just have to wait for either the propofol to kick in or the the muscle paralysis to work before you can intubate. So this happened to me. I mean, it's happened to me all my career, of course, but then there was one night I was working in a small private hospital in Brisbane and having to put an airway in a six foot, 140 kilo patient with a big bushy beard. And I had thought I'd optimised everything I could have, but nevertheless, I decided to proceed. I thought it was a not insurmountable problem. Once the patient was asleep, I tried to bag mask ventilate them. I was unable to do that because of the beard. There was a leak around the edge. Despite putting a Goodell airway in, I was still unable to bag mask ventilate them. And I thought, well, I'm just going to have to sit this out until the muscle paralysis kicks in. Once I'd done that, my first attempt at intubation failed. I was unable to see anything. It was just floppy tissue and your heart sinks at that stage because the sats start dropping. You know that high BMI patients are burning through their oxygen faster than others. I came out, I tried to bag mass ventilate again. I was thinking, oh my God. Heart rate starting to rise by this point. That's correct. And we all know the feeling, right? So I'd asking for more equipment at the same time with a junior anaesthetic nurse who's starting now to drop equipment, asking for video laryngoscopes. And my second attempt was successful, but it was unnecessarily stressful, right? And these oxygen saturations are low. The people are starting to call out the oxygen saturations. You know that's a bad sign, right? No one wants to know that. No, exactly. You already know where it's heading. Yeah. So we did get the tube in and you know, all of a sudden everyone's like, all right, let's crack on with the surgery. And all I'm thinking is, why in 2020 or 2019 it was, are we still unable to bag mask ventilate a patient with a beard? And sure, there are other issues with this patient, but one of the problems was this issue of air escaping between the mask and the face. And I thought, it's got to be a solution. Then the next, the very next day, I was at another hospital. I went in to see a, a mate who was putting someone else off to sleep and he was having the same problem. He'd been more thoughtful than I had and on the Tegaderm approach, but he would have put 20 bucks worth of Tegaderm on this guy's face. And still it's fiddly, it's time consuming and it's still not that effective. Yeah. And the other option is to ask the patient to shave their beard, which I've never heard anyone successfully asking for and doing. Right. So I spoke to someone the other day, an old man who I said to him, oh, have you ever had a problem with an anaesthetic before? And he said, yes. I said, oh, what was the problem? He said, I had this terrible anaesthetist who forced me to take my beard off. (laughs) And I said, oh my God, when when was this? He said, it's 25 years ago. And he talked about this like it was yesterday. He said it was cancer surgery and this anaesthetist refused to anaesthetize me unless I took the beard off. And I almost cancelled the cancer surgery because of it. And I was so angry and he still carried this to today. Oh, my goodness. That's a lot of anger towards a member of our specialty. (laughs) That's right. And I think it's one of those things that this is an important part of people's identity 
And some of them have had a beard for, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And, of course, then there are, are cultural issues as well for why people don't want to remove beards. Exactly. Straight after that case with my friend who used the Tegaderms, I live in an excessively trendy area. And I went to a trendy cafe and I noticed there, so this was the same day, so the day after I'd had this problem, Mm. Every single man in this hipster cafe had this <laughs> full bushy amazing. beard. They were stalking you. Yes. I was like, oh, my God, they're coming to get me in this world. ZZ Top have got your name. You know that. <laughs> yes. And so it was in that cafe that I drew my first prototype. Oh, wow. And I've still got the photo of the napkin in which I created my first prototype. Wow, wow, that's good. I just want to come back to this story because I think it's great. But first of all, your first patient, was there much assistance around if you needed it? So that first case was actually in a small private hospital and I was the only anaesthetist there. It was after hours, you know, what we talk about in our exams, like what would you do if (laughs) – and. It very much focuses the mind on why are we still after, you know, bag mass ventilation was invented in the 1960s by AMBU and it was noted as a problem then and it has not been resolved. Wow. I did not know, first of all, that bag mass ventilation was invented in the 1960s by AMBU. Yeah. That's shocking to think that 60 years on. Yeah. We haven't really come up with a solution. Well, except now we have. So well, now yeah. we have. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. so there, there's been obviously there's been the tegaderm approach, there's been people have used cling film, people have used gel like KY jelly. Sounds messy. And I've heard of people using defibrillation pads, which I think is actually not a bad idea. Wow, yeah, they're very sticky though. You'd want to take them off under yeah. anesthetic. Yeah. Yes. But of course all of these things they're fiddly, they're time consuming, they're not designed for that purpose and ultimately they're not that effective so this is an out of the packet solution it's easy to use and it works and i love that the standalone sam safety shield has that goodell component already built into it correct i can see both the value that you've got a goodell you're, you're likely to want to use a goodell in these patients anyway yes but it also probably helps with correct placement of the shield as well that's right my experience with this device has been that the addition of the Goodell reduces the intraoral resistance against which your bag mask ventilating such that the secondary seal between the backside of the shield and the face is less pressure put upon it. So I think the Goodell actually does provide assistance in helping the seal. Nice. So I want to go back. So you're sitting in a trendy cafe surrounded by hipsters with beards who are now coming out of the woodwork and stalking you. It's 2019 and you're sitting there contemplating how stressful anesthesia after hours in private can be and you've drawn a prototype. And then where did you go from there? Yeah, so you're probably not surprised to hear that there's no such thing as 1-800-INNOVATE. There's no No. phone number to call. Oh, you'd hear urban myths of people who've created devices. Of course, Archie Brain created the laryngeal mask airway. But there's no stepwise process to go through. So I suppose the things that I did was, first of all, look at other solutions out there that I'm just not aware of. And I mean, I've worked on five different continents in anaesthetics. I've been around the traps and I've never seen anything. But I did a extensive literature search 
and I looked at patents across the globe and couldn't find anything that was made to do this. And in fact, even recently in the literature and in Twitter, people are still going with the, oh, look at this hegaderm, you know, this was a great result. So it seemed that there was no device currently available. So that was one thing. The second thing I did was try and establish, is there a market for this? Because I knew while it was a simple product, which I thought was a good, you still need to be able to cover the costs of the development of the device. And so I did some rough calculations. So about 45% of men globally will have some sort of facial hair. Hey, wow. About 20% have full facial beards. Globally, there's about 300 million anesthetics given every year. Say if you say 40% of them are men, and then you say we could probably get access to 10% of that market, you can see that even if we're only making a dollar per device, then the market is actually pretty reasonable for that device alone. And establishing that even if there's only $1 per device, at least that will help cover with that volume the research and development that needs to be undertaken. That's correct. That's one of the challenges of device development. There's a lot of challenges. And one of the big ones is the, the cost of development. And we have probably one of the more simple devices it is simple to manufacture. It's relatively simple to put together. From a regulatory point of view, it's a class one device, which means you don't need to do massive patient trials. Yeah. And so really, it's almost as simple as you can get. And it's still excruciatingly expensive to develop. <laughs> wow. So how do you take it from a sketch on a piece of paper to then, I presume, a prototype? Correct. So I suppose the first thing was I had a real belief that I had a real problem and I had a decent solution for that problem. So I spent some money with an IP attorney. After that, you're like, well, what do I do now? And I was like, well, we need to get a design of this thing. And so I literally Googled product designers in Australia. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and I rang a couple. One guy spoke to me and he's had a decent amount of experience in healthcare design. And so within, I don't know, maybe two or three weeks, we had a couple of sketches. Within another couple of weeks, we had a prototype made in China. How do you find a place in China that makes prototypes? Yeah, look, so we worked closely with the design team to find someone who's appropriate. So this comes, again, comes back to cost. I was very passionate about thinking, right, this is going to be conceptualised in Australia, designed in Australia, manufactured in Australia. So we looked at um, manufacturers for prototyping in Australia. The cost of a prototype in Australia was going to be $40,000 and three months. And the cost in China was roughly $5,000 and three weeks. Wow. So yeah. it's infeasible to do it for a startup. If you're a major device company, sure, you can sink those sorts of numbers into it. But for a startup, it's very difficult. So, yeah, we had a couple of prototypes had to be made before we felt there was something we could use on patients. I suppose prior to that, well, I'd done some feasibility studies using dental dams with Goodell Airways. I had an, a fair idea that it was a, going to be a successful product uh, and then we just had to get something that would meet our requirements. 
once we had a prototype that we were comfortable with, we did some mannequin studies followed by getting TGA approval. Yep. Within about six months of having the concept, we were doing some trials in hospitals. Geez, that's impressive. And also, just reflecting on the time frame, your first sketch is 2019 and the pandemic is rolling in. I can't say I've talked to anybody who says that the pandemic has been a boost for their business. Was that six months in 2019 or were you starting to get TGA approval and, and trial it in 2020? We got TGA approval, I think it was like January or February 2020. Wow, you got lucky there. Yeah, so we just got it in. COVID was good and bad for us. So we were doing these trials and it was working well. But one of the things we noticed is that with the shield, we were capturing a lot of aerosols that were being emitted from patients within their expired breath. And there was quite a bit of excitement at the time about, well, potentially this could be useful for bag mask ventilation patients with COVID. That's when I actually thought, well, where else could this be useful? And I was thinking about the procedures like transesophageal echo, upper endoscopy and bronchoscopy. And that's when I came up with the idea to incorporate a bite block into a shield and put a valve across the aperture of the bite block such that expired aerosols are sort of captured on the back of the face and not emitted out into the operating theatre environment. And so that's where the idea for the second device came from. That's correct. That device in particular has done very well. Obviously, endoscopy, transesophageal echo and bronchoscopy are very common procedures. People are very aware of the fact that they're standing very close to people's mouths. And up until now, there's been no control of what comes out of the patient. Sure, we're all wearing masks, of course. But until now, no one's thought to control the source of the problem at the patient's mouth. It sort of collects on the back of the shield. And you can see when you're doing these procedures that the shield becomes wet very quickly. Because you're converting all those droplets, which then are becoming large droplets, which are visible. Correct. Have you done any studies looking at that? So we're, we're actually doing that currently. We're working with an engineering firm that are doing those studies today, actually. Wow. Timely. Yeah. So that's been a long process because they've had to develop all the testing apparatus. It's such a specialized area of engineering and science. I want to come back. So you've got your prototype, Mm. you're doing your research and development, but then the other step of innovating is taking it to market. Correct. And I can imagine commerce law arts as a background is very useful at this point, but how did you go from there? Yeah. Look, it's hard to pinpoint it. What we did from there, um, I started working with someone who's now my co-founder and CEO, Rachel Bowden, who has worked in getting devices to market before. So that was the first thing. And another point about startups and the device industry is, is it takes a village to raise a device. <laughs> Having a broad understanding of the device industry and procurement in hospitals and all the different steps you have to go through to get it into hospitals. I was fortunate in that I was working in a few areas where um, once we had TGA approval, I was able to show people. And very quickly, once you see it in action, people go, oh, right. And then, so in a couple of hospitals, we were able to get it through procurement relatively quickly. And then from there, 
the word spreads and that's how it's been sort of word of mouth. But it's certainly a challenge because we can't, with all the COVID issues, it's very hard to get distributors into hospitals to show the device to people to see how it works. And incredible, I think that step, I mean, we've kind of gone over it and I think Rachel's probably been really amazing in how do you know how many to manufacture, where are you going to store them? There's so many aspects. Yeah, oh gosh, so many aspects. Like before it gets on to procurement, you have to do a trial and to do a trial, you've got to have surveys and then you've got to have links in the survey to this or that. Another example, I think, which is phenomenal, is that each device needs to have a barcode where do you get a barcode from? Well, there is an international organization that gives you a barcode and that barcode costs you $600 a year to keep. So there's all these ongoing commitments then, which I've never thought of before, but my eyes are open. I'm sure all of us have said, you know, looked at the cost of a valve or a, like a, an IV fluid and you go, oh God, that's ridiculous price. I can see now why it is so expensive. Because it is the amount of regulation, the cost of IP, the cost of manufacturer and then transport. That significant commitment from you, I can imagine time-wise, energy-wise, potentially financially as well. Yes. And I think the thing is, this comes back to those early steps of, is there a problem? Does your product answer that problem in a simple way? And is there a market for it? Our device has been very successful until now, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be successful long-term. So it's still a risky process, but you need to have belief in it. You need to have done the work to de-risk at every stage. And it has been very successful, I think. Well done. Yes, thank you. I see that you've won prizes and you're getting onto national TV and various things. So congratulations for all of that. Thank you. Were you tempted at any stage to take this product to, say, a big device company and let them handle all of this research and development marketing and potentially save you a few headaches along the way? Was that ever a a consideration? Absolutely. (laughs) Susie, I think this is one of the great myths of medical device development. Before I started this, I thought, right, boom, I've got an idea, I'll get a drawing, I'll get a prototype. I'll take it to the medical device company and then I'm going to the yacht shop to buy a yacht. (laughs) That's what everyone thinks. That's what I thought. It's like all the surgical instruments that are named after surgeons. Correct. That's what I thought. But that's not what happens, right? So (laughs) what happens is you turn up at these places and they go, oh, very good, very good, lovely, lovely, lovely device. And you sign non-disclosure agreements and you have meetings and you have next level meetings. We had like, I don't know, six or seven meetings with global executives with different companies. We had two that took it a long way. One in particular said, look, it meets all our criteria, except that we can't see that it will make $100 million a year. Currently, our priorities on products that are making revenue of $100 million a year. So device companies, they have all explained to me, we used to go around buying up designs and ideas but then many of them end up sitting on shelves and not going anywhere. And so they have taken a way more conservative approach. And so all of a sudden you're thinking, right, it's me now. How much do I believe in this device? 
because it's not only the skills required, the time required, the mental fortitude required, but as we've discussed, there's also quite a high cost in taking this further. It's an interesting threshold, isn't it? Obviously, that's just one company's threshold. They'll probably all have their own. But that chap who's still angry about his beard being shaven off 25 years ago, how much value would he have put on that beard? Correct. You being alone in that private operating theatre after hours, how much value do you put on your patient at that time and your own stress levels at that time? Obviously, device companies don't think that way, but we certainly do. Exactly. And the other thing is that the current solutions are not that cheap. Small tegaderms are like dollars. And so if you're using 10 of those, the price of that can add up quickly as well. Yeah, absolutely. How much is the device, can I ask? We have a wholesale price, so it ultimately depends on how much the hospitals are buying. But they're around $15. Again, I thought in my head that is going to be a good margin. But let me give you an example. When I got the prototypes first shipped, we were getting transport at around $0.20 per device. We're now paying $2 per device to transport it from China to Australia. Jeez, tenfold increase. Tenfold increase. Plus the cost of materials going up, the cost of the human interaction with the device. When you've got to have two bits put together, you need a human to do that and that's gone. So your margins get squeezed very quickly. But as you say, if it's roughly in the ballpark of $15 per unit, if a teganerm's $10 and you're using quite a few of them, hopefully it's coming out a little bit more competitively. Yeah, that's right. And remember, these are out-of-the-box solutions. They're quick to use. They are more reliable to use. doesn't require time in an emergency. If you've got blood or saliva in the airway, it's very easy to use. We've had a lot of interest from emergency services, particularly ambulance, or sold quite a few in the pre-hospital setting. Great. No, well, look, I think it's a fantastic device. I hope I do get to see it one day. I haven't actually seen it in the silicon and hoping that the more people that hear about it can also have a look at it and see if they're interested in it as well. Yes, that'd be great. Excellent. All right. Thanks so much. Okay. Lovely. Thanks, Susie. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that chat as much as I enjoyed having it. And who doesn't like talking about airway kit? If you want to hear another episode on airway management, then I can suggest episode 58, that's 58, where I chat with Dr. Caroline Corbett, president of the South African Society of Anesthesiologists, about a video laryngoscope that she has invented called the Smart Blade. Meanwhile, we have in Australia many talented anaesthetists who are members of the ASA who've been using their talents to invent equipment, develop software and other useful things that make our work easier and more importantly, safer for our patients. We at the ASA have been collating some of these resources on our Innovations and Inventions webpage. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. You don't have to be a member to access it. And I'm hoping to catch up with more inventors in this podcast. So do keep an ear out for that by subscribing or following along. And finally, did you know that the ASA produces medical warning cards? They are the size of a business card. And the idea is that if you happen to have a patient who's had a severe anaesthetic incident, you fill out the details on the back of the card and then the patient can carry it in their wallet or phone and hopefully have it on hand to alert any health professionals in the future. I always carry a few blank ones in my wallet. I hope we don't need to use them, but I've certainly given them to my patients who've had airways that are difficult to manage. They can be purchased from the ASA website and, of course, I'll share a link in the episode notes or you can go to the ASA website and search for Medical Warning Card to find them. You don't need to be a member of the ASA to purchase these cards or, as I said before, to access the Innovations and Inventions webpage. 
All right, until next time, I hope in the spirit of Movember, you've taken some steps towards raising awareness or improving men's health, that your anaesthetics are uneventful, and as always, that you're staying safe and well out there. You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast, which can be found on all the major podcast hosting platforms as well as YouTube. This podcast is produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists and hosted by me, Dr. Susie New, with music created by Dr. Mark Sus. The Australian Society of Anesthetists was formed in 1934, and our vision is for every anesthetist in Australia to be at their best, providing the highest quality anesthesia and perioperative care through excellent technical and non-technical skills. We also hope this means that you are functioning at your best when you are away from work. In this podcast, we have conversations that seek to inform, challenge and inspire so that you keep performing at your best. Members of the ASA can access full versions of all the episodes by logging into the ASA website, which is asa.org.au. If you are listening on your favourite podcast app, then feel free to follow or subscribe so that you can receive the latest episodes as we do publish regularly. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to email us on asa at asa.org.au. We hope you enjoyed listening.